Hey, what's up, Grandpa? Yeah. How's it going? Good. I just wanted to, I, I want to ask a quick question. You know the idea of, like, you know, transcending dualities and stuff? Hello? Yeah? Would that include, like, transcending chocolate and vanilla? Same as trying to transcend black skin and white skin. They're they're different. No, but but you do want to transcend the black black and white duality, right? No, yeah, you do. But what about transcending chocolate vanilla? <coughs> no. That's that's different, huh? Buzzer? No. Well, I was also going to ask real quick. Is a, there's this one thing in like the Jewish thing where if somebody's born rich, then you're supposed to give him more if he's in need and stuff than if someone was like born poor and uh, he's always been kind of like in need. What, what do you think about that? Because because the person's like used to having more luxury and stuff like that. Well, Sounds like dualistic thinking to me. It could be to maintain the status quo, but I was also thinking it's it's, it's the idea that for not everybody it's the same, and, and maybe it's true. Somebody who's born rich might need more help and stuff because he hasn't had all that help. So sometimes you have to help some people more than others. Like other people can handle it more, you know. I don't know. Any thoughts? Well, it, it, it probably originated in, in, in its infancy as a concession, but I'm not sure what that might have been. Yeah, does it? Nope. Alright. Okay. Uh, like what time? Seeing like nine. Uh, well, it'd have to be earlier. I have a ten o'clock appointment, so. Alright, eight. Yeah. Cause eight, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, planning, I'm planning to drive to Utah tomorrow morning, so. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was also gonna ask a really quick question. Um, do you think that people are intrinsically good? Yes. What What does that mean? What about all the, you know, like original sin, like the, the negative proclivities and stuff? Well, no, I don't, I don't believe in that original sin is a, a reality. Yeah, doesn't we are we, we all go through the, the ego-oriented stage of life in which we can become arrested and then that leads to consequ uh, destructive consequences, but that's not because of our nature, it's because of our, well, because of a lot of factors. Mm. Okay, and those, well, nope. like, like, what would some factors be with that? Well, first of all, is the water in which you float your boat. If you're not exposed to it, how, how, how did the first person start with the bad water or whatever? I mean, how did the first bad water start off? What about like the human? What about the humans? What about the humans in like the tribal societies? Wasn't that bad water? Like, weren't they? Like, any thoughts? Uh, what? What, what, what was bad water? What the humans in the tribal societies, like you know, like the African societies, like that was original societies, but wasn't that bad water? Yeah. So 
so then then originally there was you know bad stuff then. Well, no, there was limited stuff. So I don't know if it's helpful to say that we're like we're intrinsically good. We're just like we have proclivities, and the environment affects it.
presumptuous. By laying <laughs> down think... what religions were allowed, it not only did... He's saying to tolerate. It's not enough just to tolerate. You you can tolerate and still believe the other person is wrong. Yeah. But he's saying that we need to go beyond seeing other person's point of view as either right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it does. No. to humans how they should worship God. It also dictated to God what kind of worship he should receive. In the late Enlightenment, therefore, it at last becomes possible to imagine toleration based not on reluctant acceptance, but on positive respect. Such toleration is fully developed for the first time in Kant. But this is not quite what Burke means by respect. Burke wants to accord respect in varying degrees to all religious beliefs. Kant's respect is accorded first and foremost to human beings. For him, each human being is in principle autonomous, capable of attaining maturity and thinking independently, without being subject to an alien, heteronymous authority. Other people's beliefs are to be respected, insofar as other people are. Yeah, we, we respect the fact that, that every person needs, needs to be respected in that they have the right to go through their own process of, of awakening to the truth. The move from toleration of minority religions to equal respect for all religions is expressed in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, 1789, which begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. All religions have equal status. Very importantly, no religion has a privileged status that lets it claim an influence on government policy. In England, by contrast, not only is the Church of England established by law, but 26 of its bishops sit in the House of Lords as Lords Spiritual. Nevertheless, religious freedom in the US is still incomplete. It is generally agreed that any candidate for president must profess belief in God, so that a hypocrite is more eligible than an honest atheist. Bell's arguments about the morality of atheists have not yet penetrated. The credit for establishing America's still very considerable. Yeah, I didn't know that the, the Constitution provides that you must be religious. You must have a religion. Yeah. I did not know that. Maybe he's misunderstanding it. I don't know. All religious freedom belongs especially to Thomas Jefferson. Inspired especially by Milton, Locke, and Shaftesbury, he composed a bill for establishing religious freedom, which in 1786, after much debate, became law in the state of Virginia and set a standard for the national constitution. Jefferson concluded, it is honorable for us to have produced the first legislature who has had the courage to declare that the reason of man may be trusted with the formation of his own opinions. His case for freedom of conscience, however, deserves a moment's scrutiny. The error seems not sufficiently eradicated that the operations of the mind, as well as the acts of the body, are subject to the coercion of the laws. But our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them. The rights of conscience we never submitted. We could not submit. We are answerable for them to our God. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Reason and free inquiry are the only effectual agents against error. Yeah, free free inquiry. That's <laughs> what needs to be respected. 
Everybody has the right to their own search for the truth. Of religious infighting. New England was a theocracy, a Puritan church state in which church and government were closely connected. And since Puritanism then controlled the politics and economy of most of New England, such a controversy among churchmen was no small matter. Salem Village was created in 1672 by a group of rural families who wanted their own church instead of going to church in the larger town of nearby Salem, a prosperous trading town. Several years of haggling over ministers followed until Samuel Paris, a former merchant and Harvard dropout, was called and arrived in Salem Village in 1689. No peacemaker, Paris failed to calm his troubled parish, and in two years' time, things went haywire. In January 1692, the minute... No, daughter, Betty, and his niece, Abigail, aged 9 and 11, and 12-year-old Anne Putnam, daughter of one of the town's most powerful men, began to act strangely. So did five other young girls. A doctor diagnosed them as bewitched and under the influence of an evil hand. Suspicion immediately fell onto Tuba, the Paris family's West Indian slave, who had been teaching the girls fortune-telling games. At first, the slave to Tuba and two elderly townswomen, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, were arrested on February 29, 1692, accused of witchery, and a general court jailed them on suspicion of witchcraft. But their trial triggered an astonishing wave of accusations, and... Not yet. Three of the young girls, basking in their sudden notoriety, ignited a storm of satanic fear throughout the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Governor William Phipps convened a special court that formally charged more than 150 people. The three Salem Village girls were the chief witnesses, and even though they said they had concocted the whole affair for sport, the trials continued. The charge of witchery soon became a means to settle village feuds. Reason was turned upside down, and the court was right out of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. To escape the hangman's noose, the panic-stricken accused often confessed to anything, including broomstick rides and sex with the devil. Professions of innocence or criticism of the proceedings were tantamount to guilt. Refusal to implicate a neighbor meant a death sentence. They, the girls saw that they got some notoriety by acting weird, so they just exaggerated. By that time, it was out of control. They also maintained the culture, you know. That was their culture, and that's how they fought the Indians, you know. Yeah. And it was nothing. That that was a way of that was a way of people who who wanted to be the top dogs and demanding and dominating. They could. Just accuse somebody of witchcraft, and there's nothing anybody could do about it. That's the way they maintained their air of superiority. Peculiarly American about these witch trials. In fact, America was relatively free of the far more murderous rampage of witch hunts that had swept Europe for centuries. Between 1300 and 1700, thousands of people, mostly women, had been executed in Europe. Eventually, 28 suspected witches, most of them women, were convicted in Salem. Five of them confessed and were spared. Two escaped, and a pregnant woman was pardoned. But in the end, 19 witches were hanged. This sickness is severe. Whatever it is. Yeah. It might be corona, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Alright. <clears throat>
and the husband of one convicted witch was pressed to death or suffocated under a pile of stones for refusing to plead. <coughs> Three of the executed said they had actually participated uh -huh. in malefic practices or black magic. At the belated urging of Increase Mather, 1639 to 1723, the president of Harvard and other Puritan ministers, Governor Phipps called off the trials that were literally ripping the colony apart. He may have been influenced by the fact that his own wife had been accused. So what caused this extraordinary outbreak? Start with the idea that the girls were actually possessed. The Christian belief in the existence of the devil is widely accepted in modern America. It does? No, that's true. They that's that. a fundamental assumption. Yeah. There have been reports that the Pope himself has performed exorcisms. So, for some people, the concept of satanic possession is entirely plausible, if not scientifically verifiable. Were the girls simply play-acting? There is little doubt that they were young girls whose wild stories were used to attract attention, but then got out of hand. It is a plausible explanation, especially when said against the tenor of the times, when people were more than willing to accept that the devil walked in New England, a refrain that they heard every day of their lives, and certainly from the pulpits on the Sabbath. But... He does. No, he's still... still... No, no new thoughts. ...does not completely explain the strange behavior that was documented and seemed to go beyond play-acting. Perhaps the girls had inadvertently discovered what we might call magic mushrooms? <clears throat> An intriguing scientific answer to the behavior of the Salem girls was put forth by behavioral psychologist Linda Caporell, who likened their actions to those of LSD users. While there was... Hey, that? No. You well, that, that was just another attempt to try to make sense. No LSD in colonial Massachusetts. There was ergot, a fungus that affects rye grain and the natural substance from which LSD is derived. <laughs> Toxicologists know that ergot-contaminated foods can lead to convulsions, delusions, hallucinations, mm. and many other symptoms that are present in the records of the Salem trials. At the time, rye was a staple grain in Salem, and the witches lived in a region of swampy meadows that would have bred the fungus. Caporeal's theory is based on circumstantial evidence and is unprovable, but is quite intriguing nonetheless. Natural highs aside, there is another medical explanation. Were the girls mentally ill? Did they suffer from a neurotic condition that doctors like Freud later called hysteria? As Francis Hill writes, No, not yet. There can be no doubt that what beset the Goodwin children, Elizabeth Knapp, and all the others, was clinical hysteria. The extraordinary body postures, inexplicable pains, deafness, dumbness, and blindness, meaningless babbling, refusal to eat, Destructive and self-destructive behavior are just the same in all three accounts. So are the exhibitionism, the self-control even in apparent abandonment, and the complete power over parents. According to Hill, clinical hysteria is understood differently today. And one of its most frequent forms of expression is anorexia. The eating disorder that primarily affects adolescent girls. She also notes that hysteria often occurs among ill-educated rural populations. Whatever the real cause, the incident at Salem had no real lasting impact on the course of American history. However, it certainly demonstrated a strain of intolerance and stiff-necked sanctimoniousness of the New England Puritan spirit. The incident also demonstrates the danger of a church state, 
an institution vigorously that's avoided by the right. framers of the Constitution. Huh? See, that's another way of saying it was their software that was the problem. That sanctimonious air of superiority was behind it all. The failure of an entire community to prevent the madness was a sad tribute to moral cowardice, a trait not limited in American history to either New England or the colonial period. Another witch hunt with eerie parallels to the Salem affair, but far more damaging, was carried out by Senator Joseph McCarthy against alleged communists in government in the 1950s. Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, written in 1953 in response to the McCarthy Red Scare and filmed in 1997 with Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis, is a compelling, dramatic treatment of the Salem incident. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, the Salem incident... Yes. <laughs> well, hey, I just got a, just got a text saying uh, um, my vehicle is finished with their, their upgrade. I, I need to pick it up, so can you call me back in a half hour? Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, I was going to say, though, they, they were escaping... Oh. I'm really sick, man. My head hurts. Um, yeah, maybe you better just better just sleep. We can talk later. No, no, no. I, I'm ready to study for a little bit, but I'm fine. But yeah, all right. Okay. It's funny. Okay. As such, the soul doesn't survive death, and that in turn means a person cannot experience pain after death. Basically, he is saying we should not fear death because there's nothing after death. Cold comfort, but logical. Finding the right pleasures. Epicurus reasoned that to find happiness, we must figure out the pleasures that are best for us. We're human, and humans have desires. Some of these desires lead to real happiness, while others lead to pleasure, and then ultimately pain. He described this by breaking down our desires into three levels. The first level of desires are necessary things like basic food and shelter. Pursue those desires, he said. The next level of desires are nicer versions of those basic needs. Rich food and big houses, for examples. Epicurus found these problematic, because we can't always get them, and if we can't, that will frustrate us. The third level of desires are those that are vain and empty, like wealth, fame, and power. <coughs> these desires can't be satisfied simply because they are limitless. Hey, Doc. Because they are what? Limitless. Oh, yeah. In other words, enough is never enough them we always want more and will never be happy these desires should not be pursued said epicurus what's the trick then temperance or pleasure through moderation simple pleasures lead yeah that's what dr hart defined as ambition pride and uh, vanity to the most happiness and the least pain while pleasures with an edge will come back to cut you. Take getting drunk, for example. It may be fun, but a hangover and dependency may result. Temperance leads naturally to happiness because it encourages us to develop virtues or good habits. These good habits will lead to good choices in seeking out the best kinds of pleasure that deliver the least amount of pain. Epicurus recommended the usual ancient Greek virtues of courage, honor, justice, and moderation, obviously. But he added another one prudence or the ability to make decisions about one's own interests and to act accordingly in a healthy manner <coughs> quotable voices hey, 
Do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. Epicurus. The Stoics. Just be reasonable. The main gist of Stoic philosophy, or Stoicism, had a huge impact on mainstream moral philosophy. The Stoics believed that reason was the highest authority, and that the human ability and gift of reason naturally followed what was natural or objectively good, and humanity had no need to label it as such. In other words, the Stoics tied our ability to reason with our ability, or even our responsibility, to act in a positive, virtuous, ethical manner. According to the Stoics, the highest authority at our disposal is reason, which also happens to be a vehicle for the rational laws of nature. However, this makes nature rational. Therefore, we should accept things for the way they are and should not try to change them. Instead, change itself and ultimately happiness and harmony can only come from changing the way we act and react. And this change occurs when we rationally analyze and adjust our emotions and actions to get them in sync with nature. The word stoic. <coughs> it does. That's a pretty good definition. To get them in harmony with the order we depend on. Yeah. He calls nature. What do you think about like the Orthodox Jews where they, you know, they, they try to, you know, when they're doing the mitzvahs and stuff, they try to do it with a lot of, you know, passion and, uh, you know, exuberance like any of us. Feeling, feeling as, though, as though they're really connecting to God, like any of us. Well, uh, the only thought I have, it, it may have much more meaning than that, but that certainly raises your level of aliveness, gets you closer to being caught up in the flow. Meaning, unemotional and unaffected, comes from this school of thought. The distinction between the word we use today and the school of thought is subtle, but important. A stoic person may not react to an event, whereas a stoic doesn't see a need to overreact at nature, just being nature. Happiness and Acceptance Stoicism was a tremendously popular philosophy in Hellenistic times, rivaled by its almost opposite, Epicureanism. At the center of Stoicism is the idea that the universe is by its nature fatalistic. Therefore, the best that humans can do in terms of the pursuit of happiness is just accept it and resign themselves to this fate, no matter what their individual fate may be. It's depressing for sure, but there's also a freedom in this idea to admit that there is nothing to be done about the things that one cannot change, which is literally everything outside of our individual selves. Our only option is to accept this reality and move on to other pursuits. If you can't change... Transpersonal perspective also change the things you can change and know the wisdom between you know that's the AA principle. <laughs> yeah. Wisdom to change the things you can change and to not change the things you can't change and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Things then it would be futile to try and you would be much happier not doing so. The notion of free will enters into this philosophy because while we are predestined to do whatever it is we do. We have the choice whether or not to accept this fate. In other words, we can choose to be happy or not. Yeah, well, that's one of the good things about predestination. There's no sense in getting upset about it and creating a story, but you, <coughs> you accept 
Your destiny. Quotable voices. Fate is the endless chain of causation whereby things are. The reason or formula by which the world goes on. Zeno of Sicium. Living the simple life. The recognized founder of the Stoic school was a philosopher known as Zeno, who was from the city of Sicium on the island of Cyprus. His followers were called Zenonians at first, but later became referred to as Stoics because Zeno of Sicium delivered his lectures to his students on the paint. No. Porch in the Athens marketplace, <clears throat> an area known as the Stoa Oikile. Zeno lived simply, eating foods that didn't need to be cooked, eschewing wine in favor of water, wearing simple clothes, and like a true Stoic, didn't get phased much by rain, heat, or even physical pain. He lived in this manner because he believed that the most moral way to find happiness was with a denial of pleasure. One story demonstrates Zeno's philosophy in a very cold way. He once saw a slave being whipped for stealing. The slave said it was his destiny to be a thief. Zeno said it was then also his destiny to get whipped for it. There is a connection. Hey, that's interesting. Hey, that's a consistent one between our fated destiny and the justice meted out for that behavior. One must accept both. A non-extant text, only references of it survive, called Republic, notes that Zeno advocated for the abolishment of civil institutions, including money, temples, law courts, and marriage. He also thought genders should dress alike from head to toe, and also practice free love. All of this, he believed, were constraints that held us down and abolishing them would free us to live much simpler lives. Even though Zeno disliked the institutions that directed moral behavior through punishments and rules, he believed that we should adopt virtues, for these were natural and part of our nature. Zeno advocated following the laws, for they were based on the principles of the cosmos. He thought laws of society reflected the order that nature so carefully created by itself. It was up to us to use our human reasoning skills. skills to discover the natural order we depend on I don't know whether the, our reasonable our reasoning is capable of accurately discerning but it certainly will point us in the right direction to find those parallel rational laws <coughs> in society and ourselves three parts Zeno broke philosophy into the areas of logic physics and ethics in his lectures, he compared these areas to an animal, making up a whole lot of necessary interconnected parts. Logic is the bones and sinew, physics is flesh, and ethics was the soul. Plotinus and Neoplatonism. All that's old is new again. Neoplatonism was the fifth new school of ethics that followed in the wake of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. As you might suspect, there are some similarities between Neoplatonism and Platonism, with the Neo suggesting a new form or a revival of Platonic thought. Indeed, the Neoplatonists at the time considered themselves followers of Plato and his philosophies. The adherents of this movement, which was founded in the 3rd century AD, just called themselves Platonists. But their theories were different enough from what Plato and Aristotle had put forth that the Neoplatonism label was applied by the 19th century. The founder of Neoplatonism was an Egyptian philosopher named Plotinus. 
circa AD 204 to 270. He honed his theories while he lived in Alexandria, then under tremendous Greek influence, and then Rome. He was influenced by classical philosophers, like Plato of course, along with some Persian and Indian philosophies he picked up in his travels, along with some native Egyptian theological principles. All he intended to do was preserve and spread and modernize the teachings of Plato, and Socrates, by extension. But he wound up fusing Platonic ideals with a bit of Asian and Middle Eastern mysticism. At age 40, Plotinus established his own school, where he taught in a conversational, informal style, and wrote 54 treatises, later collected into a single work by his ambitious student, Porphyry, called Enneads. Quotable Voices He <coughs> does.
Chapter 3. Consequentialist Ethics Consequentialism is one of the main ethical theories of the past few hundred years. Very generally put, it stresses that the focus of an ethical matter and its ethical weight resides on the person or agent by way of that person's actions or consequences. In other words, this focus and weight lead to quantifiably useful or generally positive ends, such as the well-being of humans and animals. There are a few different kinds of consequentialism. One of them is found in the broad school of thought called utilitarianism. Very generally put, utilitarianism states that morality is about maximizing the most pleasure and minimizing the most pain as much as possible. A utilitarian is someone who believes that it's important to act in an ethical fashion to spread happiness, relieve suffering, create freedom, or help humanity thrive and survive, or any one of these notions. Further, that person feels a moral obligation to do so, and that the outcome is always more important than the intent. Consequences reveal the its, its validity. Yeah. Another type of consequentialist moral philosophy is rule consequentialism, also called rule utilitarianism. Rule consequentialism follows all the same ideas of consequentialism, but with a backbone or framework of a legal system or ethical code. For example, the right action among several choices has been laid out within the ethical system already and therefore has been accepted as a moral truth by the community because it provides the best possible outcome. This is seen a lot in lawmaking and law enforcement. For example, a community may think it is moral to make bank robbers perform community service work because it helps the community. That is, this service work provides a societal benefit beyond just a jail sentence. In opposition to rule utilitarianism is the bit more theoretical, less practical, and more pensive style of consequentialist moral philosophy called act utilitarianism in this school an agent's moral action is right if and only if it produces at least as much happiness as another choice that the agent could have chosen this one is a bit more subjective because how does one weigh out the happiness you think that's true theoretical actions. There's also the matter of ethical altruism. Like other kinds of utilitarianism, ethical altruism is consequence-minded and oriented. This philosophy judges that the best moral acts are the ones that lead to the most happiness for others, but only others. Happiness comes at the detriment of the agent, and this is the most moral act possible. It's all about the happiness of others at the complete and total sacrifice of one's own happiness. Of course, each of these aspects of consequentialism have pros and cons, so let's discuss them further in the coming sections. Normative ethics and descriptive ethics. Thinking right versus acting right. Any discussion or study of ethics can be split into two essential but different questions. Why and how. Investigations into why humans act cover the guiding underlying principles of ethical standards such as virtue, human behavior, <laughs> fear of consequence, and desire for happiness. This aspect of ethics is also called normative ethics, and it is concerned with figuring out the meat of morality. The end goal of normative ethics is to help us determine the proper course of action for human behavior, which is to say the most moral, no. correct, or just ways of thinking and acting. 
One basic example of normative ethics is Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. It states that morality is an outgrowth of rational thought, and it's normative because it seeks to define the best way a person should act. How humans actually act, whether in adhering to a standard moral code or not, is a completely different situation altogether. Have you ever heard a parent say to their child, do as I say, not as I do? This quip exposes the major difference between theory and Dust? action. I guess like Charles Barkley said, like, I'm not a role model, right? It does. Yeah. Or ought to and actually does. Ethics define us as humans, but the disconnect between having a sense of what is morally good and doing another thing anyway may more accurately define us as humans. The actions that result or do not result from normative ethics fall under the banner of descriptive ethics. John Stuart Mill's principle of utility is a kind of descriptive ethics. It's an examination of behavior itself, things that promote happiness or pleasure. To make a long story short, ideals and ideas are normative ethical theories, and actual actions and the process that surrounds them are descriptive ethics. Just some regular normative ethics. Normative ethical theories are any ethical theories that debate the innate or natural value of an action, thought, or feeling, particularly if it is objectively right or wrong. Determining virtues and their reach is a normative ethical practice. So is debating the rightness or wrongness of actions based on their consequences. Yes, action is ultimately involved, but in terms of normative ethics, the practice is more about the motivating factors behind the action and not the action itself. Here are some normative ethical qualities. Yeah, but that's touching on the idea that it's the way of thinking that's more important than the action itself. You want to keep listening to this one? The action itself is... What? You want to keep listening to this one? Yeah, that's good stuff. If killing is accepted as being wrong, <laughs> is it morally acceptable to put convicted murderers to death? Is it morally acceptable? Well, you see, that's the good question. Depends upon the thinking that leads to putting them to death. Okay. Yeah, brother. If the thinking is that they need to be punished, then it's not, it's, it's not moral or ethical. If the thinking is to protect the victim and the victimizer, then setting up an order you depend on then then it's a uh, it's morally or ethically um, valid yeah that's right be slaves because the practice is abhorrent even though freeing them would violate the laws of a community that permits it is there ever an acceptable reason to inflict pain upon another person in many ways normative ethics is like high level etiquette they are wrapped up in the manners of life and how people ought to behave toward one another so as not to offend. But it's way more complex than that. Ethics are of major importance and override the rules and laws of society and are often a matter of life and death. And as some ethicists would argue, describe the pursuit of happiness. While it is morally acceptable and encouraged to be polite, normative ethics frame our ability to live our lives in a just and free manner. Be more descriptive. Descriptive ethics, then, are all about action. 
how those normative ethics are used where it really counts. It's the study of how human beings actually behave in the <laughs> ethical realm, whether they're actively considering the ethical ramifications of their actions or not. Descriptive ethics is what humans do to one another and themselves. The applied in applied ethics. This may be an easier term to understand than descriptive ethics, and the term applied ethics is used just as often, if not more so, than descriptive ethics. It's a little confusing, but descriptive ethics also concern the motivations of social behavior, such as how people reason their way through ethics, what people consider to be the most important factors in action, and the regulation of behavior based on those standards on a society or community-wide level. Recall that normative ethics are all about the theories of why. Hey, Jeff? No. What do you think about this virus, how? <coughs> yeah, the why is the, the, the thinking, the way of seeing the software. Yeah. That's the why. Uh-huh. What's the how? <sighs> well, that's, that's a formula, a strategy. Whereas descriptive ethics are all about understanding the actions of how. Descriptive ethics is just as rooted in sciences like psychology, anthropology, and sociology as it is philosophy. One example of descriptive ethics is how widely acceptable moral standards are used to form laws. For example, the actions that a society chooses to punish its members is an insight into the ethics of the people of that society. One other important elementary force in ethics is the concept of meta-ethics. This is really what the open... Huh? If, if you use your ethics as a form of punishment, that's, that's very limiting. Yeah. <clears throat> In its consequences. No? Overarching study of ethics is about in trying to determine how to act and why via normative and descriptive ethical forms, meta-ethics seeks to investigate the source of the ethical principles that make us choose one course of action over another. This is where things like divine intervention, universal truths, and reason come into play, the soil from which all other ethical philosophies grow. Quotable voices. At the descriptive level, certainly, you would expect different cultures to develop different sorts of ethics, and obviously... <coughs> no. Let's do the history of philosophy one, ready? CE and Proclus 412 to 485 CE. Porphyry has already been mentioned as the compiler of Plotinus's Aeneids. He wrote a commentary on Euclid and a number of other works. Whereas he shared with Plotinus the view that rational inquiry is the route to understanding the divine nature of reality, Iamblichus and Proclus are credited with taking Neoplatonism in mystical directions, making of it a religious philosophy in which theology, the practice of magical rituals to summon deities or to secure their aid, plays a key part. Given that Proclus was head of the academy in the 5th century CE, one can see how far Plato's doctrines had been taken in the centuries since he lived. The doctrines of Neoplatonism are elaborate. From the fundamental metaphysical principle of the One, or the First, the universe unfolds into existence mm. in stages in an eternal flow. Each stage, the ground or principle of the next. Of the one or first, nothing can be said other than it is a unity, and it is absolutely fundamental, for it is beyond being, or prior to it. 
The first activity of the one is consciousness or mind. Nous. Nous is the second ultimate ground of being after the one. The self-reflexive understanding that Nous has of its source, the one, produces dualities such as change and rest, greater and smaller, identity and difference, and it produces number, ideas, the forms and the soul. talking about the one remember we were talking about the last time it's, it's relational and, and like good bad you know up down and, and it's all relational I thought that's what I meant no the soul gazes upon the forms and is affected by them is informed by them in such a way that in consequence it produces images of the forms in time and space these spatio-temporal images of the forms are the physical things that furnish the world thus reality is the output of mind or consciousness Neoplatonism is a species of idealism, the metaphysical view that the ultimate stuff of the universe is mental. For Neoplatonists, soul and the nature it produces are on two different levels of a hierarchy, soul on the higher plane and matter on the lower plane. But matter is still an emanation of nous, and therefore partakes of the divine. It is passive, it is... Hey, that's... <clears throat> yeah, that is the manifestation of the, of the higher, the ephemeral the lowest level of reality it is the terminus of the chain of activities flowing from the one a penumbra or fringe on the outer limits of existence matter is invoked by plotinus as the explanation of evil how can there be anything evil in a universe that flows entirely from the one the good yet evil manifestly and tragically exists so how does it arise matter cannot itself be the cause of evil because it is passive inert with it does the powers of its own Plotinus's ingenious answer is to say that when beings further up the chain of existence in particular human beings concentrate on material things below them instead of the higher things above them evil results he regarded people as essentially good but corruptible and that this is the means of their corruption his view proved controversial among later neoplatonists Proclus devoted a whole treatise to refuting him on this point arguing that human souls are capable of evil on their own account a view consistent with the Christian doctrine that people are born sinful because of Adam's fall. Christian moral theology invoked the idea that the deity gave humankind free will and that this is the source of evil. But the problem for believers in a good God is not quite made to go away by this, for it does not explain such natural evils as the suffering produced by cancer, tsunamis, earthquakes and the like. Indeed, the problem of evil is one of the most persuasive of the anti-theist arguments, answerable only by conceding that if there are any deities, they are not wholly good, or not wholly powerful, or both. The ethics of Neoplatonism constitutes a major source of disagreement between its adherents and Christians. Because humans emanate from the One as a source of all being, Neoplatonism says humans are themselves divine or partake of the divine, and the purpose of a life of virtue is to revert to unity with the One. The shortest route to reabsorption into the one is, as one would expect a philosopher to say, the philosophical life devoted to understanding the nature of reality and being in the court. just talking about how do we, we um, re-establish our awareness of and participation in the oneness? Yeah. How do we get from get there from here? Yeah. It's understanding. 
This is par excellence the life of the mind, abjuring things of the body. So far, this rejection of things worldly is consistent with the strenuous version of early Christianity that saw so many of its votaries going to the desert to escape temptation, even in certain cases adopting the extremes of self-castration or living permanently atop a pillar. But the Christian claim that salvation had been achieved for humanity by a one-off self-sacrifice of God in human guise was rejected by Neoplatonists outright. In one version of the Christian view, all you need for salvation is to believe that claim, a very cut price offer indeed in comparison to the Neoplatonistic view of the universe. The later transformation of Neoplatonism into a religious practice involving theurgy was in large part a response to the nature of late antiquity. The period of the demise of the Roman Empire in the West, the rise of Christianity and its vigorous and prolonged assault on paganism, including destruction of the literature and art of the preceding thousand years, the existence of many other sects and the movements, the hordes of holy men, mystics and magicians who swarmed that darkening world in competition with each other, which meant that, for the purposes of attracting followers, pledges of salvation and the aid of the gods had to be made. The prosperity gospel movements of Christian revivalism in Africa and America are versions of this phenomenon. Philosophical examination of ideas had a hard time. Uh -oh. no. Competing with bald assertions, claims, miracles, and promises, the more fanciful the better. A familiar story. For a time, philosophy all but vanished in the swamps of religious claims and practices. Later, Neoplatonism followed down that path. Nevertheless, Neoplatonic ideas proved extraordinarily influential even in this morass, not least perhaps because the morass was itself in part made by them, and most effectively by Proclus. Augustine in Western Christendom, and such figures as Basil and the two <coughs> fathers named Gregory in Eastern Christendom, were influenced by Neoplatonist ideas, as was the theology developed in later medieval times by Aquinas and others. When the Arab conquest began in the 7th century CE, the regions of Eastern Christendom, where Greek philosophy still survived, chiefly Syria and Mediterranean Egypt, immediately influenced thinking in the expanding Islamic world. In the Renaissance rediscovery of Greek philosophy, it would be unfair to follow them to Africa for this investigation. We will consider them here, on the same stage with the whites, and where the facts are not apocryphal on which a judgment is to be formed. On this same stage, he could never find that a black had uttered a thought above the level of plain narration. Never saw an elementary trait of painting or sculpture. Religion, he said, indeed has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it cannot produce a poet. With notes on the state of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson emerged as the preeminent American authority on black intellectual inferiority. This status would persist over the next 50 years. Jefferson did not mention the innumerable enslaved Africans who learned to be highly intelligent blacksmiths, shoemakers, bricklayers, coopers, carpenters, engineers, manufacturers, artisans, musicians, farmers, midwives, physicians, overseers, house managers, cooks, and bi- and trilingual translators. All of the workers who made his Virginia plantation and many others almost entirely self-sufficient. Jefferson had to ignore his own advertising. Hey, Jefferson said that blacks are inferior. This guy said they could do all of those. Yeah, this guy said that, but not Jefferson, though. Oh, okay. He said Jefferson, so they're inferior, thus. Intellectuals. No. 
advertisements for skilled runaways and the many advertisements from other planters calling for the return of their valuable skilled captives who were remarkably smart and sensible and very ingenious at any work one wonders whether jefferson really believed his own words did jefferson really believe black people were smart in slavery and stupid in freedom notes on the state of virginia was replete with other contradictory ideas about black people they are at least as brave and more adventuresome than whites because they lacked the forethought to see danger till it be present jefferson wrote Africans felt love more, but they felt pain less, he said, and their existence appears to participate more of sensation than reflection. That is why they were disposed to sleep when abstracted from their diversions and unemployed in labor. An animal whose body is at rest and who does not reflect must be disposed to sleep, of course. But on the previous page, Jefferson cast blacks as requiring less sleep. A black, after hard labor through the day, will be induced by the slightest amusements to sit up till midnight. In Jefferson's vivid imagination, lazy blacks desired to sleep more than whites, but, as physical savants, they required less sleep. While Jefferson confidently labeled enslaved Africans as inferior to Roman slaves, for Native Americans, he cried that the comparison would be unequal. While confidently making distinctions between blacks and whites, Jefferson equated Native Americans and whites. As he told Francois Jean de Chasteloup, who served as liaison between the French and American militaries during the Revolutionary War, Native Americans were, in body and mind, equal to the white man. He supposed the black man in his present state might not be so, but it would be hazardous to affirm that equally <clears throat> cultivated for a few generations, he would not become so. For Jefferson, clarity always seemed to be lacking when it came to racial conceptions. This note proved to be the clearest expression of his assimilationist ideas. The reason for Native Americans having fewer children than whites was not in a difference of nature, but of circumstance, Jefferson argued. For black people, the opposite was true. The blacks, he said, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. The ambitious politician may be fearful of alienating potential friends, may be between enlightenment anti-slavery and american pro-slavery may be honestly unsure did not pick sides between polygenesis and monogenesis between segregationists and assimilationists between slavery and freedom but he did pick the side of racism in 1782 jefferson had no plans to publish notes on the state of virginia he was busy putting his life back together a life torn apart by 13 years of public service and by months of being hunted by the british war had shattered jefferson's past mark Jefferson's death on September 6th of that year shattered his future. He had planned to retire and grow old as a planter and scholar in the seclusion of Monticello next to his wife. Overnight, the sanctuary of Monticello became the caged pen of Monticello, bordered by bars of wounding memories. He had to escape. His friends in Congress found a solution. On August 6th, 1784, Jefferson arrived in Paris for a new diplomatic stint, eager to take advantage of the shopping, the shows, the culture, and the trading prospects. The same week that he made contact with the French foreign minister, Jefferson sent it. Wait, huh? No, not yet. Oh, let's do Da Vinci. Well, let me, no, let me just hear the end of what, what happened there. Oh, okay. Instructions to Monticello to speed up production. He figured that his own captives and his nation's captives would be tasked for the foreseeable future with producing enough tobacco for French merchants to pay back British creditors. At the same time, Jefferson was busy telling abolitionists, nobody wishes more ardently than me to see an abolition. Jefferson loathed slavery almost as much as he feared losing American freedom to British banks or losing his pampered lifestyle in Monticello. 
He liked and disliked both freedom and slavery, and he never divorced himself from either. Economic diplomacy was Jefferson's official job. His hobby was science, and he partnered with Benjamin Franklin, who was also in Paris to defend America from French onslaughts of American inferiority. Jefferson brought his still unpublished notes on the state of Virginia and an uncommonly large panther skin in his baggage. He had 200 English copies of his notes printed in Paris in 1785. He sent the manuscript to French intellectuals, to Benjamin Franklin, and to John Adams, James Madison, and James Monroe. A copy reached a devious printer who, without Jefferson's approval, translated it into French in 1786. Jefferson arranged for an English edition to be released in London on his own terms in the summer of 1787. Thereafter, notes on the state of Virginia would become the most consumed American nonfiction book until well into the mid-19th century. Count Constantine Volney, known in France as Herodotus's biographer, was putting his finishing touches on travels in Syria and Egypt when he read notes and befriended its author. When Volney first saw the Sphinx in Egypt, he remembered Herodotus, the foremost historian in ancient Greece, describing the black and frizzled hair of the ancient Egyptians. Making the connection to the present, Volney mused, to the race of Negroes at present our slaves and the objects of our extreme contempt, we owe our arts, sciences, and even the use of speech itself. American races ridiculed Volney as an ignorant worshipper of black people when he visited the United States in 1796, not Jefferson. He invited Volney and his anti-racist ideas and his history of black ancient Egypt to Monticello, how could Jefferson, the authority of black intellectual inferiority, look to Volney as the authority of ancient Egypt? Clearly, scientific truths were forever tugging at his self-interest. Thomas Jefferson visited southern France and northern Italy in February 1787. Hey, no. Should... no. You want to keep listening? No, that's fine. I, I just wanted to see what happened there. Let's go to Da Vinci. Okay. He is suggesting. He has discreetly covered David's genitals with what looks like a bronze leaf. Leonardo was not generally prudish about nudity. From his Vitruvian man to his portraits of Salai, he merrily drew naked men. And in his notebooks, he once wrote that the penis should be displayed unashamedly. Indeed, a red chalk and ink nude he drew in 1504, around the time of the statue placement discussions, seems to combine in a psychologically interesting way the fleshy face of Salai, then 24, with the muscular physiognomy of Michelangelo's David. See figure 31. He also did sketches of a nude and muscular Hercules, front and back, that were probably for a statue he hoped someday to make as a counterpoint to David. Yet there was something about Michelangelo's version of muscular, intrusive male nudity that Leonardo found disagreeable. Michelangelo won the Battle of Placement. His David was carefully rolled from his workshop over a four-day period and installed at the entrance of the Palazzo della Signoria. It stayed there. Hey, does. There until 1873, when it was moved inside the Academia Gallery. And in 1910, a replica was placed in front of what had by then been renamed the Palazzo Vecchio. But Leonardo won his argument that a decent ornament should be added. Hey, let's check out this uh, book, Identity Economics, instead of it. Okay. Experiments we're, and we're Identity... Huh? We're beginning to run out of time here, buddy. Alright, just this one more, one more right? <clears throat> just a okay. Economics. As in behavioral economics, a large body of experimental research informs our theory. Experiments in social psychology, and now increasingly in economics, show that individuals' behavior depends on who people think they are. Mm -hmm. In 1954, in a foundational experiment, no. a psychologist, Muzaffar Sharif, and his colleagues took two groups of 11-year-old boys from Oklahoma City to Robbers Cave State Park. 
The groups were sent on separate buses and were isolated in different parts of the park for a week. Within each group, the boys became close, mainly through roughing it together away from home. The boys formed distinct identities. One group killed a rattlesnake and proudly named themselves the Rattlers. The other group called themselves the Eagles. By the end of the week, both the Rattlers and the Eagles were aware that the other group was also inhabiting the park, but they had not yet met. Hey, Doc. When they were brought together to play competitive games, the 11-year-old equivalent of war broke out. At its climax, the two groups raided each other's huts and burned each other's flags. In the second phase of the experiment, researchers studied and applied interventions that would lead the boys to become friends. They happened. Hey, Thus? No. No, it hasn't, hasn't, hasn't said enough for me to have any thoughts yet. This experiment clearly exhibits the elements of our procedure. Social categories, the groups identified themselves as eagles and rattlers. Norms, both groups saw fighting as appropriate to the situation. Oh shit, I ran out of batteries. Tell me what you think of this poetry I just wrote. Ready? I, I worked almost unbearably hard to get to where I am today, and it was due to God setting up conditions that allowed for the process to result in the current this current condition. I'm so grateful and extremely humbled. I passed through the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a miracle I made it out. Hallelujah. I'm so thankful. I faced the dark night of the soul, and it was more horrifying and miserable than you can imagine. <clears throat> I'm so honored that God took me through this path. Amen. Thank you, God, and I sing praises to you forever. I sing praises to your glorious name. All I want to do is glorify and worship your perfect name. Any thoughts so far? No, that's good. Please accept my humble obeisances because I feel I am not worthy of your glory. Yet you stayed <clears throat> with me and were there for me, and all I can do is hope that I can be a humble servant and transform for your purpose in peace and wonder. Amen. <clears throat> Please guide me by your light and perfection, God. Please allow me to be suitable for your brilliant and impeccable presence beyond compare. I am not worthy, but please allow me to bear your effulgent splendor, or at least gain favor in your eyes, <clears throat> for I know that I am unsuitable for your sight, yet you did not forsake me. <clears throat> you chose me as your servant, and I praise you. Please help me polish away the impurities that make me undeserving of your consummation. I beseech you to maintain your grace in my life, not for my sake, but for yours, because you are holy, and I only want to extol your greatness. I am a wretch, God. I am a miserable wretch. Please hold me in your grace and splendor so that I can embrace your perfection. I don't want anything else. Any thoughts so far? It's good stuff. What can I possibly do for your forgiveness? Please keep me close to you. That is all that I need. I cannot bear anything else. <clears throat> Free me from myself so that I can be all for you. Yet, I'm unworthy, and I don't claim virtue in your holy sight. Praise the glory of the Lord. Amen. Praise his magnificence and his splendor. We are mere morsels in its radiance. Thank you for humbling me, even though I am still abject in your sight. But you knew me since the womb and loved me greatly. I want to exalt your name and laud you that you are indeed the greatest. You are the greatest, God. You are the greatest. Amen. Any thoughts? Good stuff. They don't know me, God, yet they slander my name. 
They don't know me and they misrepresent my name, but you knew me and loved me and rewarded me with your splendor. Even though my greatness only stems from you because it is all your greatness. You knew me, God, from the beginning, from before creation. And it is for your purpose that I acclaim your unfathomable, unfathomable distinction. Please make my enemies dust. Amen. For your purpose and honor. Amen. <clears throat> for they are vermin to you and you hated them from the beginning. But by unwarranted grace, I found favor in your sight, thanks to your perfect will. And you will bring upon them terrible punishment. And for your sake, you will allow me to glorify you, even though I am unfit and base in your vision. Yet you love me and love me, and I seek your presence and grace. Please save me from my sins and guide me to your transformative power. Any thoughts? They, they are sickening to you. Those who cannot acknowledge you out of their arrogance make you disgusted. They aren't worthy of taking room in your creation. Burn them for the dishonor they have afforded me. Amen. Punish them and let your name be reverenced. Grant me victory over them. Amen. Spit them out and let them turn to ash for your namesake. Amen and hallelujah. You love me from before creation, God, and I found favor in your eyes, even though it was unmerited, but in your grace you granted this to me. Help me to ensure that the worlds proclaim your name and recognize your unmatched majesty. Grant me swift victory over those who blaspheme your name out of pride and arrogance and idiocy. I cannot bear it, and I want them to be humbled by your exaltation. Purify me of my sins, God. I want to be intoxicated by you and you alone. Any thoughts? Free me from anything that is not favorable in your sight. Help me to never let your name leave my mind and thoughts. Only you can grant me salvation. Those who dishonor you will face your wrath. And there will be tremendous uproar and despair on the day you allow me to finish your will on earth against those who sought to dishonor you. To God be the reverence and the glory. Amen and amen. They did not believe in you and you will not let them go unpunished from their ignorance. They are ugly and fools and disgusting in your sight. But grant those who turn to you forgiveness and salvation for you are just and merciful. I knew from the womb that you chose me as your servant. I was always saturated with awareness of you. I, was ex I always extolled you and knew your magnificence. Let those who you hate feel your anger and despair. They hated you and disbelieved. They mocked you and were not sincere. Let their folly be revealed and let them feel their, your divine justice. For they are goofy to you and your mercy only extends so far. Any thoughts? Burn them and let, you, let them feel your rage or else they will find your name something to be mocked and ridiculed. You cannot be mocked or ridiculed. But they in their arrogance will think they are accomplishing such. Don't let them go unpunished and please absorb me with your potency so I cannot stray off of your unequaled path. Let them who persecuted me and mocked me feel your wrath, but also let them turn to you away from their stubbornness so they can be saved. I only want to be saturated with God from now on. I speak from my heart so I don't have to speak what is false. Circumcise my heart, Lord. They will taste your judgment on the day of divine reckoning. Burn them. Make them regret their folly. They are pigs to you. Roast them on a spit and let your people come to you. Amen. Your people will embrace your name. And on that day, there will be peace in the lands and the angels will blast their trumpets in jubilation. For the old is no more and the new has arrived. Burn the heathens. Burn the vipers. May your name be pronounced from sea to sea and crush those who repulse you. They are fakes. They are frauds. Crush them under your feet and make pools of wine burst forth, proclaiming your awesomeness. And I will drink the wine as it pours forth to your tribute and homage. Lord, make me a clean vessel. Am I worthy of your honor? 
Cleanse me of my impurities. Wash me of my sins. How am I a sinner worthy of such favor? Amen. Any thoughts? No. That's a good discipline. Yeah, it's good, huh? Yeah. You like that? Yeah, how long you been working on that? I just work on it today. Ah. Yeah. All right. All right, thanks, Gabba.